Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. This week we're going to be diving into a problem that may not be facing your product today, but is certainly something you're going to have to look out for down the line as you scale. That's product complexity. As organizations grow and more and more teams are packing more and more functionality into what are already complex products, there's a tax on our users. So how can we offer them more without making it harder for them to find success using our product? To explore a little bit more about how to keep your product and its UI as simple as you grow, I'm joined in the studio by Andrew Ofstad. Andrew's the co-founder and chief product officer over at Airtable, a collaboration tool that's part spreadsheet, part database, and used by everything from product and marketing teams to cattle farmers and filmmakers. Prior to Airtable, though, Andrew was a PM at the earliest days of Android before moving over to Google Maps. There, he led a product redesign with one core aim, restore simplicity of the product without sacrificing its growing capabilities. In my chat with Andrew, he reflects on why complexity creeps up on product builders. An ambitious team will keep building new features and keep shipping things, and that's great, but at a certain point, you need to take a step back and look at it with fresh eyes. How his team at Maps paired things back using first principles? We wanted to make it contextual, so every part of the UI always reflected the thing you're currently focused on in the context of the current map research. And how that experience has helped him keep the UI simple for Airtable, which is fundamentally a complex product. That's kind of one of the main lessons, is just making it as easy as possible to kind of manipulate the data quickly and to get down to just uh, working directly with the information. If you like what you hear want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, you can subscribe to the show over at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a rating or a review if you can. It helps new people find the show, and we, of course, appreciate all your feedback. And now, let's hop into the studio with Andrew Ofsted. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Andrew, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Excited to be here. To get started, could you give us a quick rundown for how you got to where you are today and the problem you guys are trying to solve today with Airtable? Uh, Yeah, sure. So I started my career at Google as part of the Associate Product Manager program, which was started by uh, Marissa Meyer. And basically, they just take new grads and kind of throw them into the deep end, put them on a project, and you're sort of just the product manager. So it was a great opportunity. You sort of learn a lot really quickly. And my first project was Android. It was back in 2009, so at the time, Facebook and Twitter weren't interested in building Android apps, so the actual Android team was, was responsible for actually doing that. And so I was a product manager for those two social apps, and it was a lot of like working with Facebook and Twitter, getting their assets, and actually you know designing and building those apps. But uh, after that, it's a kind of a two-year program where you do one year on a project, and then you rotate to another product. So my second product was Maps. Uh, I was always really interested in geography and always loved Maps, so I kind of chose that one and was super excited to work on it. Uh, On Maps, I sort of was part of this really cool project where we kind of, from the ground up, took Maps and kind of redesigned it. And at the time, it was back in 2010, and Maps had become super complicated. There were all these teams working on different features, and sort of the mandate of Maps is to organize all the world's information, at least geographic information, coming down from, you know, Larry and Sergey. And so, uh, you know, there are a ton of information in maps, imagery, business information, streets, directions, everything else. And so at the time, maps had become like really cluttered and complicated, and it really wasn't a simple interface anymore. So uh, we had this great opportunity where there was a team in Seattle that developed this new technology where you could actually render the maps in uh, the browser using WebGL. And so it was kind of a nice excuse to appropriate that technology and kind of redesign maps from the ground up around that. And so that was my project. I uh, kind of got a prototype, do a lot of prototyping and the actual design of that. So uh, yeah, so that kind of led to Airtable. Uh, while I was working on that, I sort of got 
got the itch. Uh, my my friend Howie from college, um, we'd always talked about doing a startup together. And I'd always been interested in tools and creative tools that kind of let normal people and users kind of do things that previously only experts or, you know, programmers could do. So, you know, I, I prototyped a lot of products where you can kind of build web pages and uh, simultaneously Howie had sold a company to Salesforce and was a product manager there. He sort of saw that a lot of business tools out there were kind of reinventing the wheel and were really just kind of simple databases uh, with with some simple views and and logic and workflow on top of that. And also, like, for business apps, one of the, the most important things he saw at Salesforce was the ability to actually customize them to fit your very unique workflow. But the problem is, like, you know, if you're adopting a business app, a lot of times they're very rigid and flexible, and you can't really make them fit your very specific use case. So you're either stuck with a very rigid application or uh, you, you kind of have to build your own. You have to have somebody that understands databases to configure something like, you know, Salesforce, for example, or you have to have a programmer to kind of build a custom app and so you have that, or the other side of the spectrum is just using something like a spreadsheet, which you know wasn't really intended for being used for that use cases, kind of built for number crunching and uh, financial modeling. So there wasn't really a tool where, as an end user, a, a business user, you could really kind of build a, a good internal application to kind of manage a very specific process and workflow. So we basically wanted to build something that was easy enough for anybody to use to kind of build these internal business tools. And, and that's kind of where we landed with Airtable, started just kind of pr- doing a lot of prototyping, built an initial demo, started showing that to people, getting a lot of feedback and refining that over, over time. And yeah, we've sort of grown the team and the product and it's been a, a good adventure so far. Well, I want to get a lot more into the work you did with Google Maps and what you're doing today with Airtable. But quickly, I got to step back and ask you about Android, because you weren't just an Android in the nascency of your own career, but in that of Android itself. So looking back at that time, what exactly sticks with you today now that you're a founder yourself? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, um, I think there are a few things that made Android really interesting. The first was, like you mentioned, it was a, a product where you're kind of shipping software that goes along with hardware. So there are very tight deadlines where every six months you'd have all these carriers and all these partners where they're expecting the next version of Android that they're going to ship on their new phone. And so you're tied to this hardware launch, which is a very rigid timeline. And so as compared to most other projects and software that we see today, where it's kind of like iterative and you're constantly shipping features, you basically had to build, you know, like in the old days when you're shipping a CD-ROM, you had to to ship a build in a very specific timeline uh, with a very specific set of features that you're kind of promising to these partners. So I think that drove a lot of like urgency and also kind of excitement in the team where uh, you basically are given this mandate to, uh, you know, build this very uh, ambitious new release and you just kind of have at it. And so it was really interesting in that way. And um, I think like it's kind of hard to create those deadlines and constraints outside of like the hardware world, but you can still sort of do it. And I think the other thing that really made Android interesting was that, uh, you know, is a neck to neck race with with Apple. Uh, when I joined, it was before the Droid was released, and, and that was sort of the inflection point for Android. So at the time, it wasn't really clear if it was going to be a huge success. There wasn't a lot of adoption, and it was kind of right before that inflection point. So I think also that urgency of like competing directly with somebody uh, also made things very interesting and made it a very fast-paced team to join initially. I think some of the lessons from that you can sort of apply to any company – you know, any any startup, you're sort of racing against the clock and you're, you know, you only have so much runway and you always have competitors and you're always kind of fighting against the status quo as well. And so there is that same sense of urgency you need to sort of convey. 
And for us, a lot of times there's like a big customer or there's like, you know, as much as you can sort of take the actual urgency of what we're doing and the problems we're trying to solve for our customers and communicate that to the team that's actually building the future, I think the better it is as a motivator uh, and actually like creates the same sort of urgency you, you see in something like a very hard deadline on Android. So we try to do that as much as possible and really tie the people that are working on the product back to the customers who are really demanding these features and really excited to see them. I think that helps to motivate the team. What do those type of rigid deadlines teach you about prioritization, which is something that's obviously such a huge challenge for particularly early stage startups? Yeah, I think prioritization is, you know, like pretty much the most important thing you do as a product manager. And you obviously want to be working on the most important things that you can ship in a given time period. And it's hard to sort of figure figure that out before you actually start diving into it. But um, yeah, I think it's just a matter of kind of figuring out the bare essentials that you absolutely have to have and then, uh, you know, stack ranking those. But also figuring out like what trade-offs you can make. Are there like a few shortcuts for things that are less important? Um, I think the danger in that is like a lot of times they're like, you know, you can sacrifice a lot of, you know, quality product decisions uh, are, yeah, you kind of throw things out that would make the product very delightful or otherwise would uh, be worth the investment just to like, you know, squeeze in these other few features that might not be used by most of the, the users. So I think actually the first thing is just understanding the use cases and sort of having a feeling for that 80-20 split where uh, you're, you're knowing kind of what people are doing with the product most of the time and just kind of stack rank the use cases, first of all, and and figure out, you know, first of all, how to make the experience completely awesome for those 80%. And then afterwards, if you can fit in the 20%, kind of tackle that, but make sure that you're just doing, yeah, basically, you sort of have to have a good mental model of what your users are doing with the product first. I think that's kind of the prerequisite for any prioritization, obviously. But then after that, it's it's all about uh, making sure that for those experience, everything is really simple and really delightful and as high quality as possible. So speaking of making things more simple and delightful, in 2010, you move over to Google Maps. What was the state of Google Maps when you got there? Yeah, so Google Maps in 2010 was a pretty amazing product. I think if you look back to 2005 when it launched, uh, it was also kind of a groundbreaking product where, you know, it was basically at that time, everything was a full page reload. Like you go to MapQuest and you press a button to move the map over and the full page refreshes and it just didn't have any interactivity. 2005, Google Maps launches and you could just kind of reach out and grab the map and drag it and it had this interactivity, which just made it amazing. And I think even though it didn't have the same feature set as MapQuest, it basically put it beyond that just because it was so easy and efficient to use. Um, And between 2005 and 2010, Google had invested a lot in maps and added a lot of information to it, you know, imagery, street view, business information, satellite view, all these aerial photos. And so it had really focused on getting a lot of information to maps without kind of rethinking the UI to accommodate all that information. And there were teams distributed between New York and Seattle and and Mountain View and Zurich who were kind of building all these features disparately. And so it kind of, you know, in a lot of ways it reflected the organization where there are all these really smart teams doing really amazing things and pouring these great features into maps, but there wasn't really a kind of thought process around how they're going into it and how they fit into the whole. I mean, there was, but it wasn't, it sort of like got... So you have organizational complexity that's essentially fueling product complexity. Yeah, I think that was part of it. And also just, you know, it it it's kind of like uh, it was a slow build up to that complexity. Like, you know, it's like boiling a lobster, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like slowly increments over time. And nobody realizes if you look at it with fresh eyes that this thing is like really complex and, and cluttered if you do a search. So, 
I think it's just kind of a matter of, you know, an ambitious team will keep building new features and keep shipping things, and that's great. But at a certain point, you need to take a step back and look at it with fresh eyes and... and See where the users are struggling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... Walk me through your process in this unique challenge. Obviously, it was a huge endeavor, but did you begin by pairing things back, or did you go and start from first principles? Where did it begin? Yeah, so we actually started with first principles, which I think helped a lot. And we we had a great excuse to do that, which is there was a team in Seattle who was building a completely new way that we render the actual maps. Uh, Before, basically, the way it worked is we'd render these map tiles in the server and send them to the client as images, this team had found a way to basically render the map directly in WebGL in the browser. So we started thinking of all these cool things you could do with that, like you could change the map every time you click it, or you could you know, show animations on the map, or if you search for directions, we could just like, we could render the map however we want for any different uh, you know, search or context, whether you're clicking on it and make it really interactive. So it sort of gave us an excuse to rethink maps from the ground up around, around that new technology. And uh, I think, again, sort of the way that the new Google Maps was built, the redesign was built, kind of reflects the organization as well. Like I think at other companies, maybe like Apple, there would have been like a Skunkworks team that's completely secretive that kind of goes off and builds this new maps or whatever. But Google is sort of a collaborative thing where it just kind of started with this team in Seattle and it was kind of bottoms up where we started prototyping new cool things on top of it and like rethinking the map UI around this new interactive map layer. We sort of had this great excuse to kind of think from the bottoms up and I think that helped a lot as opposed to paring down because I think the other thing that helped is that we didn't say that, like, oh, on this deadline, we're going to, like, completely deprecate the old maps and replace it with a new one. Because I think that would have created the problem that every team kind of starts flooding to the new map teams. Like, oh, we got to add all these new features, and, like, pretty soon you're right back where you started again. So we sort of had, like, this the existing Google Maps, and we kind of spun this project as, like, the new Google Maps. You can, like, opt in to try it, and it's kind of like this beta thing we're experimenting with. And uh, that sort of let us, first of all, keep it constrained to the most important use cases in the early days to really kind of build up the kind of components that we needed to really make those use cases shine. And then slowly, I think, like, organizationally, it helped because slowly kind of, like, wrapping in other teams, like, oh, the directions team is going to, like, start working on the new maps and uh, focusing on that and uh, adding that. And, like, it's not like everybody kind of piles on at once. It was kind of like a slow trickle of people kind of moving over to the new thing. So I think it kind of helped a lot for us to start with just a prototype and kind of scale it up from there and, like, slowly kind of get more people involved and excited about it as opposed to, like, doing this kind of, you know, completely separate team which just suddenly launches and replaces the old one. Right. So as you're getting more and more people involved, what types of constraints did you have to put in place to make sure this thing just didn't get too bloated? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I think philosophically, and uh, we, we sort of really wanted to limit ourselves to kind of a few UI components just because with something like Maps, you know, we wanted to make sure that it was mostly about the map and not just a bunch of Chrome around it, a bunch of CRUD. So we really focused on that aspect. And I think we also took a lot of inspiration from mobile apps at the time yeah, it was, it was like we saw a lot of really cool design and real simple design for complex products and mobile apps, and and we kind of took that as inspiration for the desktop app, uh, web app that we were working on. So I think it it's sort of like taking the constraints that you have on mobile, like a small screen, and then kind of applying that to where you actually do have a lot of space, but then saying, like, we want to create this simple experience, which covers, like, these core use cases really well and does it in a really, really interactive and efficient way for the user and make sure that we're, like, following those constraints. I, I think the other important thing is is as you're sort of designing this, you have to look at all the use cases and over time kind of, like, think about how they'd fit into the, the larger pattern. You can't just sort of, like, you know, build one one-off feature for a very specific use case. You have to kind of find the, the expressive pieces of UI that are simple yet expressive 
So one example is on Google Maps, the search box, like it's a very expressive thing where you can search for anything in the world and it should just pop up on the map. Or if you do an autocomplete, you can sort of like surface directions from that and just kind of like keeping things contained to to these expressive components um, or like imagery, for example, you know, it always reflect the current context of the map. So if you search for something, the imagery would reflect exactly what you search for. Or if you click on something, it'd be like contextual to that. So I think we, we took a lot of inspiration from uh, kind of mobile apps where things are very contextual mm-hmm. and you tap on something and suddenly the UI becomes about whatever you tap on. And we don't just show everything at once, which is kind of like a lot of what we were doing before, where you just like turn on a map layer and there'd be, or like a photos layer and there'd be a ton of photos on top of the map. We wanted to make it contextual. So every part of the UI always reflected the thing you're currently focused on in the context of the current current map research. Right. It's sort of like that saying, good design is obvious design, where you don't really have to think about it. Yeah, exactly. But I think it just takes a lot of discipline of kind of being very intentional and kind of stewing on a feature for a long time and like running through the use cases in your head and then also just kind of like making sure you're not trying to throw everything into, into it as possible, which was why I think kind of going back to the building from the ground up versus paring down UI, I think it's a lot easier to build from the ground up and make a make a really, really clean uh, UI as opposed to the, for something that's very complex. So you mentioned taking inspiration from mobile apps at the time of this project, but today, who do you see as, as a product that really, like, it's very sophisticated in terms of capability, but has managed to keep their UI very simple? Yeah, so I think even, you know, a few years ago, I, uh, like I said, I was always into sort of creative tools, and I really liked the program Sketch. I think Figma is sort of like following the footsteps as well. But if you kind of look at the status quo at the time, it was Adobe tools like Photoshop where it's just super complicated and you can do a million things with like filters and image processing and everything else. But what most people were actually using it for and kind of like going back to the core use case was designing web apps. And uh, Sketch kind of, I think, saw that and, and realized that basically you're just kind of trying to design web pages. So you want the design tool to kind of reflect what you can do in the actual medium, which is, you know, the web and the DOM. So they kind of pared that down and made it very contextual where you can just kind of like select objects and the UI kind of changes to show what you can do with that exact object rather than showing all the controls at the same time. So I definitely took inspiration from tools like Sketch. This was kind of more in the Airtable days after after Maps. Yeah, today I think they're still doing a great job. Obviously things like Figma, but uh, yeah, those are kind of like the two main ones I, I would say I take inspiration from. I'm just going to pause the podcast there for a second to tell you that the Intercom Customer Service Trends Report 2024 is out now. We asked 2,000 plus customer service teams across the globe how they are meeting the challenges and opportunities of 2024. In it, you'll see this year's top five customer service trends plus strategies to meet rising customer expectations. You can find the report at inter.com forward slash 2024 trends. Okay, back to today's episode. Looking at the work you did with Google Maps and Airtable today, one of the biggest crossovers is the fact that you have sort of made the content the UI. What other lessons did you take from your Google Maps experience as you got Airtable off the ground? Yeah, I think that's that's uh, one important one, like you said, making the content the UI. I think that Maps, as much as possible, we actually called the project Tactile Maps because we wanted you to just feel like you could reach out and touch the map, click on the place, you know, drag it, move it. And, and it was really in the spirit of the Maps where you could just, you know, even from 2005, you could reach out and grab it and, and drag it. So for Airtable, we wanted to make it about, about the data as much as possible. And I think we were, when we looked at other sort of, you know, database tools out there, like Access... When you first started with it, 
you'd have to go through all sorts of configuration, set up the schema, do all this like meta stuff around actually setting up something where you can put your data into. And, you know, the reason I think people love spreadsheets is you can just pop it open. You have this grid and you can just start entering information. So you can really easily directly manipulate the, the data itself. You can, you know, bulk select, delete things, change colors, copy paste. There's sort of all these ways you can just directly kind of reach out and touch the data. So with, with Airtable, we wanted to kind of recreate that immediacy that you have with something like spreadsheets or maps where you can just kind of reach out and, and touch the data and manipulate it directly and bring that over to something that has more structure like a database. And so that's kind of one of the main lessons is just making it as easy as possible to kind of manipulate the data quickly and to get down to just uh, working directly with the information. You mentioned the, the spreadsheet metaphor there. With horizontal products like yours, which has such a wide array of use cases, which we'll get into here in a minute, having a metaphor like that to communicate what your product can be used for, how important is that or how has that helped you as you've brought Airtable to market? Yeah, I think it's Airtable is fundamentally kind of a complex product and something that's a little bit difficult to wrap your head around without actually seeing it. And I think sort of the spreadsheet metaphor helps us a lot because when people see a grid, they expect it to sort of behave like a spreadsheet. And we support all the things you could do, like drag handles and everything else. And I think one thing we've learned is that just being able to show the product in context of data that you actually understand goes a really long ways. So one thing we do there is kind of when you're starting out in the onboarding flow of Airtable, we have you pick a few example templates, which are hopefully relevant to you. And then we just kind of show you those templates in Airtable and then basically, I think that goes a long ways. First of all, and we just kind of show the grid, which looks like a spreadsheet. So people kind of understand all the patterns that, that they're familiar with there, and we support all those patterns. But we also want to show the differences, which is kind of one hard part. If you rely on an existing metaphor, people a lot of times would expect it to behave ex- exactly the same. But when you actually show data, I think it communicates pretty clearly what's going on. Like one main difference from Airtable over a spreadsheet is that each column is a specific type. And each record is like an object you can like expand out into like a form. And so I think when people just see columns of data, which all look the same, whether it's like a, you know, colored select dropdown or attachment or text or a link to another record, I think that helps to uh, convey sort of that, you know, this is a grid like a spreadsheet and it supports all those interactions. But there are also these key differences that you should be familiar with. And and the data really kind of speaks to that. And once you play around with it, you can sort of see that. One of the key use cases you guys have is for, for product teams, UX teams, things like that. Are you guys using Airtable to build Airtable? And if so, what unique insights does that give you in your product? Yeah, absolutely. So we you know we use Airtable from everything from our uh, product road mapping to our marketing editorial calendar where we're planning out our next blog posts and feature launches to tracking our bugs. So pretty much everything uh, we do where we need to track something for our product development or marketing, we, we use Airtable for. Yeah, I think it's great. Like in the early days, we were just building the product for ourselves, and I think that's always the best way to you know you're really solving product. a problem, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so as early as possible, we just started using it for all that stuff. And I think there's some danger that you lose touch with your customers if your customers are using it for you know vastly different use cases. And so, I think it's important if you're using it internally all the time to also spend a lot of time talking to customers who have use cases that are pretty far removed from yours. So we try to do that. We have everybody on the team do, uh, you know, customer support rotations where they're talking to customers uh, through Intercom. Yep. And so I think I think it's great, and it really drives a lot of innovation. We have, you know, like hack days, and people always just build the features they will actually want to see in the product from using it on a daily basis. But I think it's also important to make sure everybody's exposed to everybody else's use cases as well to make sure that we're not just building it for ourselves, but we're, you know, as a horizontal product, it can be used for all these other things as well. And as a chief product officer, I mean, are you still 
interfacing with customers yourself at this point? Yeah, we do a lot of kind of big customer tours. We'll go to like New York or uh, set up a bunch of things in San Francisco and just kind of like, you know, go to one meeting after the other and see how people are using the product, see where they're hitting roadblocks and how we can help, show them some cool demos. But yeah, I definitely do a lot of that. And I think it's sort of like the main job of, you know, a product person to understand the customer and translate that into the most important things to work on next. So it's definitely important uh, and and something that I always want to sort of stay involved with. You guys have over 30,000 companies using Airtable now. But one question I know a lot of startups always get is, how did you get those first several users? Uh, what were you guys doing on the front lines in the early days? In the early days, we actually, you know, we just had a demo that was kind of half functional that we showed to friends and investors. And our first real customer actually was a nonprofit called Scholar Match here in San Francisco. And my co-founder, uh, Howie, had worked with them before. He knew the uh, director pretty well. And we were showing them a demo just kind of get feedback. We sort of like did these things where we'd like work on Airtable all day. Then the next day we'd sort of like do a bunch of user studies and show it to people and get thoughts. And we showed it to her and she was like, oh, that looks awesome. Like we're looking for a way to track like all our students and all our – so they basically do scholarships for students and all our donors and like track our events and everything. And they're looking at some sort of expensive Salesforce implementation or building their own kind of custom software. And spreadsheets kind of weren't cutting it for them. And so we showed them the demo, and she was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Can I just start using it? We're like, uh, we're not really ready for that yet, but, you know, we can set you up. And so they're kind of our first customer. And for a long time, it was just kind of like people we knew. We sort of did like this. Uh, we did an alpha launch in Hacker News and got a bunch of, like, enthusiasts kind of signed up. But, I mean, it's a really complicated product, so it just kind of took us quite a while to get it to sort of like the, you know, what we considered the v- V0, where it was kind of like a complete product. And initially, it was just people who were kind of early adopters, heard about us through Product Hunt or Hacker News or people we kind of knew directly and it kind of spread from there. And now it's purely like word of mouth, like all these use cases where we're seeing a lot of adoption, like video production and uh, marketing teams and, uh, and everything else. Like uh, word just kind of spreads within those, within those verticals uh, pretty organically. So uh, I kind of went from just pure enthusiasts who love the technology to people where it was solving a very, uh, you know, a very acute pain in a, a, a vertical and it kind of spreads from from there. Like a lot of horizontal products like Trello, for instance, you're bound to have some very unusual or unexpected use cases. I think I saw you speak at one point saying that you got farmers tracking their cattle on Airtable. What's the most unique or surprising edge case that you've you've come across that maybe you didn't anticipate? And did it teach you anything new or different about your product and its potential? Yeah, so we we actually that that maybe the the most surprising thing is the number of farmers and uh, you know cattle trackers and that type of thing that people have built. There's actually a vertical piece of software called Cattle Max, and if you go to it, it's it's just like a database app for tracking your cattle, and and like everybody's switching from Cattle Max to Airtable now, which is awesome. But uh, besides that, people just have a lot of you know people will use it for work, but they also use it for personal use cases, and people have like a lot of really cool, unique uh, things they're tracking in Airtable, like. People will track all the characters from like a comic book in Airtable and have like these really cool images of it and random stuff like somebody will track the, I forgot exactly what they're doing, but they're like tracking the width of their ankle because they had ankle swelling problems over time, like weird sort of like quantified self stuff like that. But yeah, it really runs the spectrum. I mean, we've seen everything. Well, with a spectrum of use cases, you're going to get a spectrum of feature requests that are all over the map. Um, I'm sure you're saying no to more and more things every day. How do you make sure that you maintain simplicity over time and don't just become another bloated project management app? 
So I think, especially in a horizontal product, from day one, you sort of have the problem where people are asking for all these random things that you kind of, you know, if you throw it into the product, it's going to apply to their very niche use case, but it's just going to be cluttered for everybody else. So I think a, a couple of things. Yeah, first of all, is that I think we think very carefully before we build a new feature. And we have this concept of uh, simmer features where for these big things we know we're going to do eventually, we just kind of let them sit there for a while and we think about it and we just keep it in the back of our mind. So as we hear more and more use cases from more and more uh, verticals, we can sort of see how they fit into that and figure out a way to sort of like take that, that set of use cases and build a feature which kind of is generalized enough to kind of adapt to all of them. And so we do a lot of that where we just kind of take a long time to actually think through a feature if we know it's going to be like a big component. So that's one thing. I think the other is is building things in sort of a modular way so that for different use cases, you can like add and remove pieces. So, I mean, one one simple example is that in Airtable, you have columns basically in your tables and each column is a different field type. So uh, you can just add any different field type you want, and you can combine them in different ways, and you sort of have this combinatorial explosion of, of complexity where you can kind of customize and, and fit a lot of different use cases by adding kind of a different structure to the, the table. Um, and then we sort of have this other modular concept of like views where a view is just like, you know, a, a different way that you present that data. So you kind of have like your raw table with records, which are this configuration of different fields. And then we have different ways you show that. So I think it's kind of like these modular components you can combine in different ways and mix and match. And kind of basically, if you're using Airtable for one use case, you can use these uh, five fields together and these two views, like a calendar view and a gallery view, but you don't have to like see, you know, a button for like the map view and for like all this other stuff that's not relevant to your use case. So I definitely think that we try to think in terms of like expressive components that you can kind of kind of mix and match into your own application. And and really at the end of the day, we think of Airtable as kind of like a application builder and more and more we're going to sort of like tackle different layers of that stack where you can basically build like a full-fledged application. Uh, but there's a lot of complexity in that. So you have to sort of build features that are flexible and generalizable, but still have like a cohesive kind of metaphor behind them. Like the view thing where it's like different way to present the records. There's like kind of a short way to explain logically what this kind of broad set of features, which you can like add on as modules, uh, have in common. So there's that constant push and pull between complexity and simplicity. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thanks again for joining us today. Great. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.